thanks, Jesse, for coming on to talk to me. Of course. Yeah. I, no, so, thank yeah. you for having me. I feel like I <laughs> both talk to you every day and also have not talked to you in six years. I know. That's that's a really uh, interesting thing about social media, isn't it? Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> um, today, this is my second interview that I'm doing today. And both times I'm going to start with a question that isn't actually my first question, which is mm-hmm. you responded to one of my Instagram stories about the video for You Can Call Me Al saying that it yes. was it was also formative for you. Can you tell me about that? Like, how was You Can Call Me Al formative for you? You know, I, it, it's hard to remember. So I, I, I should have remembered when exactly the song came out. But so I, I watch TV early and often. So like as, as early as I was, one is hypothetically able to watch TV, I was watching TV. And, you know, MTV, I feel like was a thing I was constantly watching. And I just from such, such a distinct memory of watching that video with my dad and like learning what funniness was like, right. <laughs> like, I don't think I don't I don't know what my brain was like before it like and there's so many seminal memories that sort of came immediately afterward but like I do just like the idea of like seeing grown-ups acting silly and being like this is like what comedy is this is what funniness <laughs> is which is these beings that I've only understood as like being protectors or like these foreign beings and like they act they make funny faces too and yeah. especially because it's like they're wearing those like they're dressed up they're just like something yeah. that so clearly made sense um and i still think like my sense of humor is like not so far away from that which is like right. grown-ups doing stupid things but like still well done like it's still yeah. like professional it's not like completely thrown together and and just sort of like the deadpan quality of like this is going to be completely unaddressed. This world of like <laughs> silly world, we don't know why they're doing this, and and that is like over and over again. It's like the thing that I find funniest. Yeah, but I was I started listening to Graceland like very obsessively last year, even though I've loved that song forever, and that the video again for me too taught me what funny is because <laughs> just Paul Simon like his face in the whole video. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it just teaches you the idea of like the straight man and then like, and especially like moments like when he carries the drum past the door and he's looking back at Chevy Chase. There's just something about it. Obviously, I don't think about comedy as much as you do, so I can't explain it as well. Um, I just know that it was like, yeah. I think you explained it. I mean, it is like, it is classic comedy routine, but not played how it's right. So it's like, also he's... He's short and Chevy's tall right. and like, and it just heightened and played a little bit more grounded than is, was of the style before that. But like, if that video was made now, like it would be even more extreme, but like, it, it just sort of was, there is also something about like it being music that like appeals to a kid in a way that right. like, if it wasn't music, it wouldn't work. Like, right. because if because it's a completely, the comedy is completely nonverbal. Like you don't have to understand any words they're saying because the song is being played. And like, ultimately the song is not about like what the video is about. And also like the song is like Raffi adjacent in terms of like its musicality. So I think it's sort of like, (laughs) Oh, this, this appeals to you. And I think it's hard to remember this, but I remember this only because when I interviewed John Mulaney, he was talking about, and he's he's a little bit older than us, but like a lot of kids programming 
that was around when we were a kid was just adults doing things. Like yeah. it was not, it was for kids <laughs> ostensibly, but like it was still just like you saw two adults. Like it was not like a bunch of kids hanging out. So I do think right. like it, it like pl- it was written as a sketch and it plays like very much what would work, but like it wasn't violent. Like I do think like a lot of two man comedy that you would see, or even like, I feel like I would see some three stooges stuff as a kid for whatever reason. And like, it was like more aggressive than I guess was my sensibility at four and my <laughs> sensibility still. Uh, and so it just sort of was like, everything like it still is it's still like i guess if talisman is the right word but it is like a touchstone that it's nice to see like it carry through but you're like oh that that is like the same comedy as detroiters right like or whatever things that i think of like are the things that are for me that i'm like this is this it's both it's sweet and they're playful and um but not um not done in a way that's so obvious where it's just sort right. of like they'd never do a thing which is like isn't it weird that paul simon like i don't even know if right. i knew paul simon, like like that's the thing of like i don't know when i learned paul simon was the little guy right right yeah no it's yeah for, i don't know it, it is funny that like one that we saw that video so much and that it was so memorable because I mean you're not the only person like who's like our age where I've talked about like the you can call me out video and being like what what was up with that why did we like that so much but like it was like very very appealing to people who are like three or five years old um and yeah so I yeah it was that and the I remember that and the George Harrison I got my mindset oh yes that video was so funny (laughs) But also, for me, I really like the Grateful Dead video, Touch of Grey, where they turned into skeletons. Um, See, I don't know pro- why. That probably would have been too spooky for me. Even yeah. That, even <laughs> my mind. Well, I'm just um, looking can, when that... I'm when that came out? Yeah, it's just so funny. Like, because they're... I mean, like, the Call Me Out video, I think, was, like, 86, 87. So was... Yeah. So that means I was, like, hypothetically, like, two... And maybe I remember from that. Who knows? But like, it is so clear. Um, Maybe I'll say that's my earliest memory if anyone ever asks. (laughs) I think, I think that's a good one. I think that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Sure. Yes. Um, I grew up in uh, broadly Long Island, New York, since you'll know where these things are, I'll say more specifically. I grew up, I grew up in Valley Stream, which for those who don't know is really, really, really West. And mostly entirely south. So it's it, I board where I grew up specifically was on the border of Queens and Long Island. Um, and it's uh, a, you know, as you know, it's like yeah. the places where <laughs> suburbs were invented. Um, <laughs> it's like a Valley Stream's a pretty big one. Um, right. And it has, I think, at least. I, it has two SNL cast members. In my head, there was a third, but I can't remember who. Both Jim Brewer and Fred Arberson are from Valley Stream. And I grew up in um, a town that was inside Valley Stream that when I was called Green Acres for a really long time, but then there was um, a shooting at the Green Acres Mall. Yeah. And so we voted. We. I was not a part of it. <laughs> uh, we voted to change our name to Millbrook. Um, okay. So... And it's, 
it uh, is a nice little town, you know. And yeah. then, so eating was a big part of, I think, growing up. My dad, like, my dad in my head was, like, a proto-foodie. Like, yeah. I think before, like, because all I know from how popular restaurants were in the 80s is from that scene in When Harry Met Sally, where <laughs> Carrie Fisher was, like, uh, restaurants in the 80s were what theater was for people in the 60s. And I don't mm-hmm. totally know what that means. But, like, my dad wasn't, like, a yuppie. Like, he didn't have enough money to, like, go to the restaurants. He was right. a psychologist. But in the 80s, he was primarily, like, doing um, residencies or whatever. So he wouldn't, like, go to restaurants. But he, like, he lived in the East Village because he, like, wanted to try the different foods that lived in New York that, that were in the city. Like, he was going to school in Long Island. He's getting his mm-hmm. PhD in Long Island. But he lived in the city because he wanted to eat different things and then so he like raised us on that ethos um and so that meant a few things like he 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 had an office in queens that he he would go to multiple days a week but on saturday sometimes he would take me there and we'd get lunch um in flushing right so like i had like going to flushing queens and eating Chinese food and and mostly it was Cantonese, especially then, mm-hmm. and like knowing what that meant and understanding the differences and like learning it. Like broccoli was my favorite food for a large <laughs> part of my life. It was like broccoli and roast chickens were the only things I wanted. But like, and I as as long as I've lived, I've known broccoli as American broccoli. Like that is how I understood what broccoli right. is. Like, and like I preferred it because it's less bitter than what we would call, I guess, Chinese broccoli. Mm-hmm. And but I, I like understood and that I think that's a huge difference, which is like, oh, understanding that like your idea of what food is, is not universal is like already pretty eye opening thing. But like, I remember like when sushi restaurants opened up, I remember when a Thai restaurant opened up and like my dad telling me what Thai food is and telling me that he would eat Thai food all the time. <laughs> and, and my dad cooked a, a lot, you know, um, he like on the weekends he would do things that took more effort again like a thing that now feels so commonplace which is like people like oh i'm gonna learn how to make gazpacho or whatever (laughs) or like i'm gonna learn how to make cajun food like none of i didn't know no one else's parents i knew were doing stuff like that and and, um and i would always help them whenever i could like i like gazpacho was such a specific memory for me, even though like I didn't like eating tomatoes for most of my life, but like it demanded the most chopping mm-hmm. so I could help him the most because like, I was like, I could do the chop I, and maybe that's not, a, it's interesting. It's like, he let me do the knife related cooking, but not the fire yeah. related cooking. Um, so like that's, that is like eating was like so many of my memories that I have are eating related. Um right. Like it was, you know, Friday nights we had take we got we got takeout Chinese food Friday nights. Often we would get there was a specific sort of American Italian place, Italian American place we got food from on Sunday nights. There was like the kosher deli. Right. And and eventually like I worked at that kosher deli. I worked <laughs> at a, an Italian deli. Um it just sort of like was a f- that is sort of like how I organized what Long Island was. And I think right. um, before I learned to not like it as a place, I think that is what I liked about the place. <laughs> well, I mean, same. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because people ask me 
I, I did an interview recently where someone was like, oh, tell me about where you grew up. And I'm like, uh, like, <laughs> I, just, I don't know how to explain it other than like buy the food that I ate yeah, yeah. because that's the only good thing about it. So like that in the beach, I guess. So it's like um, just constantly organizing it by. And I think it sounds kind of insane to anyone maybe who grew up somewhere where that's like not the only good thing, yeah. you know, where it's like I'm like and you. Know, so it's like I'm a food writer. So I guess people expect me to talk about food. But at, if I wasn't a food writer, it'd be like, why are you only thinking about things in terms of the pizza and the bagels and yes. the Chinese food? And like, like, well, it's because I come from like a hell mouth. So, um, but, <laughs> but even like, yeah. Cause it's like, I have friends who like now as adults, maybe like are into food less than I am, but they still were people be like, Oh, I like this pizza. Like it, like right. long Island, I think trains you to like develop opinions about the things that are plentiful, which are bagel places and pizza places and, pizza, and, take, yeah. and take out Chinese. And, and those especially, I think then as by high school, it's like also you had the opinion of like, what were your sushi places? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that has always been a part of like, I can't speak to wasp Long Island and wasp yeah. New York city. I sort of didn't, I didn't know any of those people. I didn't know there were Protestants until <laughs> high school. Like I understood that that Jewish people weren't the most. I like right. though I grew up in a not the I grew up next to the most Jewish part of Long Island, but I understood that Jew, Jewish people were not the majority of white people in the country. But I thought Catholics were. I was like, I, right? It's like yes, they're it's not Jews, but it's definitely all these Italian people and all these German <laughs> people and all these Irish people. But like that stew of that generation immigrant which all those sort of people are, which is sort of um, early 20th century where like food and the amount of food is just so important. And the opinions about food is ingratiated in, I think so much of like what we think of as the New York identity. And so like my mom grew up in Long Island in the same town. And like, so yes, she didn't have necessarily opinions about what sushi place, but like they did have opinions about what bagel place or even the, the place where we got pizza most of my life was her parents place that they determined was the place. like it was right. like and i imagine if you talked to whoever else that had that same sort of lineage they would be like that place sucks yeah this is the place and it's partly because like it is so like what i find so fascinating which is like if you've grown up we're like x is the the er tomato sauce or whatever yeah. right so then if you eat any other tomato sauce it's not going to taste as good because you have a certain value system of like what, whatever it is. It's like so minor and it's the type of thing that fascinates me, but like, Oh, for me, tomato sauce should be this and have this much acid. Where like, if you had a person who like, liked, I don't know, this Italian place, they'd be like, Oh, I like sweeter tomato sauce and anything right. that is not, that is acidic is gross to me. <laughs> and that like, and, and that is what I like. Cause otherwise Long Island, it's like my parents, once me and my older brothers graduated from high school and were in college, they they moved upstate. Like they hated it. <laughs> like for the most, it's just so cramped and so much traffic, and like parking lots were like every parking lot was a nightmare. And it's like yeah. you don't have to live that way. And <laughs> so it's like that. Yeah. So especially where I grew up, it's like there's certain food of that level and access to the city is like the reason you do it. Yes. Yes. No. And I mean, for me, there was also a lot of Greek food. I don't know if there was a lot of Greek food where you grew up. There, there was, I, because 
I didn't like tomatoes. Everything <laughs> that was like to me was tomato related. I was right. like, that's not my thing. Um, yeah. And so, like, I couldn't understand like, oh, there's these Greek salads and they have tomatoes in it, so I don't want that. And like, um, gyros or whatever had tomatoes in it. Like, I couldn't be like, I want yeah. to just take out the t- t- tomato. I just sort of like, I saw one and had a tomato in it. I was like, no, thank you. I don't think it, <laughs> I don't think I started really eating like Greek or general Mediterranean related right. food until much later when I realized you could just ask for not tomatoes or yeah. or like it is a sauce. Like I, it's just sort of like chugged tomatoes. It's like an early taste distillation or whatever. So yeah. I was like, well, tomatoes is the thing I don't like and bananas is the thing I don't like. And then that was just sort of the rules. And then, and I didn't like eggplant, right? So it's like, once you don't do that. Yeah. So like my parents were eating Greek food, especially because they were vegetarian. Uh, they they still are. Uh, but as we're talking about what childhood they were. So like Greek food, I think was like really appealing to them. And I yeah, think yeah, yeah. It may, maybe it's even possible to like, oh, this is the thing that we can just eat, right? It's like, yeah. I I ate meat and my brothers ate meat and also we were all in growing boys in high school and my dad realized just make slabs of meat and (laughs) we won't say anything about it (laughs) no it's funny to hear someone say that they didn't know what a like never didn't know what a protestant was because i don't think i did either like i think i don't know if they're there now they must be on long island i i mean i don't know i mean like if you broadly define protestant to mean anything that's not catholic or greek orthodox i have to imagine like so like this is like incredibly i this is i i I don't want to talk too much about this because it's coming from an incredible place of ignorant but ignorant (laughs) but like so valley stream where i grew up has become like in vogue um Uh because as all these people are leaving the city with families yeah valley stream is a place people are listening to move which is crazy because yeah. it wasn't a bad place it just like was not the place on lists people said to move <laughs> because there were like really nice suburbs all around and like right. why would you move to a medium nice suburb when there's these sort of really really nice ones but so my little brother who's 11 or 12 years younger than i am he he went to the same elementary school but then moved when he went to when my parents moved so so when i grew up it was like let's say 80 percent um jews italians irish let's say right. that's right 80 percent the entire thing and then um i had some friends who moved who by the end of elementary school i had, I had some jamaican friends and haitian friends and filipino and uh, taiwanese like that was like that wave of was happening mm-hmm. um but then in the 12 years by the time my brother was graduating I would say that he was one of two Jewish kids in his elementary sixth grade class. And there's maybe like three Catholics. And then, wow. so, so that's part of what is the pitch when people are like, Oh, oh like you should move to Valley stream. Valley stream is the most diverse yeah. um, town in long Island, which is like, it's, it's, it's crazy other than it makes sense because Valley stream was never, defined by one ethnic group like it right. wasn't an italian town and it wasn't a jewish town or what's like which happens in long island as you as you know so i think that little amount of openness the fact that like that it didn't have to be just one allowed like a slow creep so now like as as there are more first and second generation africans or asians or um there's also sort of like a, a lot of seemingly affluent Af- african-americans who are I think 
I don't know what their their religions are. Is what right. I'm trying to say. <laughs> no, for real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, but it, it is such an interesting place to have grown up because of all of that that was going on. Um, yeah. But it is it is also like the most segregated place. Um, and also that did wait. Speaking of weird places, people are moving. Did you know that Anna Wintour's like beach house is in Mastic, <laughs> so which is. Which is so weird. I was like, what the hell? I was like, that's that's so far from the Hamptons. And when I was like a kid, like Mastic was like the most dirtbaggy place. Yeah, but I guess if you want a lot of space, you don't want to see anyone. Like, I think you were like, oh, I just want a beach. That's mine. Yeah, Like then you move to... And you're like, though she's rich, right? Like, she's rich. But like, compared to other types of rich people, I don't know how rich she is. Like, Like, she's not like as rich as like, Howard Stern or Jerry Seinfeld or Billy Joel. Right. So like who are all great Long Islanders. (laughs) They all have places on Long Island, but they also have like hundreds of millions of dollars. So they can both move to the Hamptons and buy a giant place, right? Right. But like Anna Wintour probably doesn't have enough money where she can do both. Like she can Yeah. She probably has enough money where she could buy a giant place on Long Island that's like a beach place, or move to the Hamptons and have it like a nice place. Like but she doesn't have I could buy top market over the like insane. I'm buying this just to prove how much money I have places. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, since we're on this kind of sort of topic, but like, (laughs) so I, I don't know if this is actually that related, but like I, you know, there, I feel there's similarities between kind of food and comedy in the cultural world. And like food is a pretty obvious topic for comedy. And I was going through your podcast, Good One, which we haven't mentioned yet. Um, And like so many of the jokes are about food, which might just speak to your interests, I guess. (laughs) But like you talked to Mark Maron about turmeric and like even like Sebastian Maniscalco, his doorbell joke is about cake, really, I think. And so like, but are these things similar, like in terms of, you know, the taste that you bring to them and and all that like are there actual connections in your perspective yeah i mean it, it's hard because i i mean the answer is for my perspective yes because i'm the only perspective i have right. and it's like <laughs> i i because comedy does not sort of have a history of criticism like almost every other art in the right. world like no matter what every sort of critic broadly defined i try i'm getting into maybe accepting calling myself a critic but um <laughs> half, half comes from a different point of view right because there's not a a history of it so um so there are the arts that i'm interested in that 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 are my frame of reference and and food is one of them and and fine art is one of them and i think on the surface level a lot of comedians talk about food because it's a universal experience and if you're trying to be the type of comedian that is famous and popular to a lot of people it is a very good subject to appeal to a lot of people especially if you're not cursing right like if you want to talk Mm -hmm. about family food is so associated with family and and it's also just sort of like a thing you're doing three times a day right so like if jerry seinfeld instead of three times a day um eat it instead of eating three times a day three times a day did i'm trying to think of another thing that is you know like worked out let's say you worked out three right. times a day and everyone did instead let's say everyone worked out three times a day and ate once a day jerry seinfeld would have hours and hours of working out material. Right. Because that's how his brain works. He, he has a 
some comedians have these broken brains where they can't <laughs> they can't not just be looking for material and be like, oh, that's different, you know. So for a person like Jerry Seinfeld, who like to me is not like a, who like cares about food so much for a person who seemingly doesn't care that much about food, but like right. like he every episode of that his show he's getting coffee and he cares about that and he cares about and he but most of the time they're eating yeah uh, one time i was at carbone i think the only time i ever ate at carbone it was in the back room was his birthday party Ooh. <laughs> I know, I, but i didn't realize it was his birthday party because one famous person came in after another and you're like how do how does andy <laughs> cohen no isla fisher no jake gyllenhaal no and I was like, oh, these are people that are apparently Jerry Seinfeld's friends. Um, so anyway, he was eating a carbone. <laughs> but I think I think it's it's just sort of a it is a it's a thing that he's observing. So you see that with a person like him, Jim Gaffigan has so much material about right. food because it's a way in. And like Jim Gaffigan's recent, he put out two specials that he did entirely of material of the country he was in. So he did uh -huh. an hour of Canadian jokes and he did an hour of Spanish jokes. And he was going to do an hour of jokes either about Latin America or about Mexico. He hadn't decided because then COVID hit, so he couldn't do those shows. Mm -hmm. And all the jokes were about food, every single <laughs> one. He had an hour of jokes about Canadian food. Wow. And it's because if you've been to Canada enough, as he has, you're just like it's a it's a it's an easy way in a surface level way where you can interact with a culture if you want like and it's, you it also can be a more deep way you can interact with the culture but it is a way where you can you can have an immediate interaction but i also think for me where they connect is and where i think about it the most is they are incredibly subjective art forms yes that are so subjective they feel objective which yes which is <laughs> Your, your relationship to what you think tastes good and similarly what you laugh at is so built into who you are as a person that you can't imagine someone else thinking differently. And it becomes really hard for me to sort of then like be like, hey, this is not good or that is, that's good. Like so much so that I've given up on it. I've given up on the idea that there is good. Good and bad is not what I... I think about it's not how I try to talk about the art of comedy mm -hmm. where like where because there is a history of food criticism, food writing, I think people like trust sources, even if right. they, even though they shouldn't hypothetically, like yeah. I think you could hypothetically, if a person likes a restaurant, you go there and you like it. And then they go to another restaurant and they say they like it and you, whatever, then you could be like, Oh, me and this person have a similar enough point of view, but like, right any assumption that like one person is more correct is like, and that you should then live that way. doesn't make sense because you've lived a very specific life where three times a day you've eaten food and that has shaped what you find interesting or not. And it's so connected to background and where you lived and when you lived and, and in uh, class and every single thing that makes a person a person it interacts with. And as a result, and comedy is the same way, which is like you laugh however many times a day. If you live a good life, hypothetically, you laugh more than you eat. Let's right. say. <laughs> but if you do, each laugh is the same as a bite, maybe, you know. But all of those laughs are such specific associations of cultural history, but also your friends' cultural histories and also the media of what you, the time you grew up in. I think 
comedy especially is incredibly time sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like, it's something I think about a lot where people like comedy is about timing and they assume that means like the speed in which you say, um, I think of like, like Wayne's world or whatever, where he says something and he says not. And you're like the time yeah. between he says not, that's what timing is in comedy. But it's also just sort of like in 1991 or whatever, when he first said that joke was at a time where like sarcasm was ready for its spotlight. <laughs> so like yeah. timing is so important in comedy in terms of like how cultural builds to a certain, um, what people find funny and what is interesting and what's surprising. Cause surprise I think is, a little bit more important to comedy than it is for food, though it, it can be important to food. So it all sort of stirs together. And mm-hmm. I think what we both find, me based on reading you and me based on being myself, what we find it why we find our subjects interesting is because all that goes into a person can go into this form. Right. It gives you an opportunity to bring all of yourself to it where you can write about it from a psychological point of view, you can write about it from a psychological point of view or a political or, or anything that is because it is all a person is. And, and in ways that other art forms, I think are a little bit harder because it's like, I don't know. And that's the part that it's harder. Like it's hard for me to imagine like, what is, what, why music is different, but it just sort of is different. It is. (laughs) No, it absolutely is. And I, I've been thinking about this a lot because my boyfriend, like comedy, the way comedy manifests for someone, if their lang- like their native language is different, um, yeah. is like, and it's so difficult to communicate why something's funny and why something's not. And like, so I've been trying to like really understand his brain on this yeah. because like he likes Curb Your Enthusiasm, but is a bit indifferent to Seinfeld or like, yeah he really loves like certain Adam Sandler movies. And I'm like, all right, I'm trying to like understand what's going on here. And then like really didn't like kids in the hall. And sure. then I tried to show him like a Mark Marin, I think his last special. And he was like, I don't like this. And I was like, <laughs> but, and I'm like trying to understand, like, re- re- like um, kind of explain how, com- like how it works. And he's just like, that's like the worst. Like you can't explain to someone why something's funny. Yeah. And just like, you can't like, ex- like intellectualize how something tastes, like if something tastes good to you, you can't just explain to someone who doesn't like it enough how to like it, you know, it's, and so like, but I think that other art forms, there is that sort of like, it's less visceral because you're not having an act. Well, sometimes you're having a physical response, but like, you're really, it's not a physical thing, you know, it's yeah. laughing is physical, eating is physical. And so you really know in yes. your body how you're responding to it. Whereas like when you look at a piece of art and someone, ex- and you're like, I don't really like it, but someone can explain to you why it's good. And you're like, I understand from that perspective. Like, you know, yes, you can exactly. put yourself in other perspectives when it comes to other things. But for these two things, like, it's just, it's, it either is or it isn't for you. Um, yeah, and I think it, I, yeah, I think Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler is a huge international comedy star, right. which is not a thing that usually exists because comedy does not trans like it barely translates between people that speak the same language. Like right. people's like, oh, it's because of the language. It's not necessarily like that. Like I, there's British comedy that I'm like, I do not get it. Like <laughs> contemporary yeah. British stand-up comedians who are very successful, and you're like, this is an iteration on some other iteration on some other iteration of like a history that I am not a part of. And, you know, sometimes there are British comedians 
who clearly um, watch American comedians. Like that's right. like their frame of reference. And so as a result, you can get it, right? It's like there's mm-hmm. this comedian Daniel Sloss who had on who's like essential, ostensibly an American comedian, but he's Scottish. But like, I I, I watch so and I and I I've, so much of that I've avoided British comedy because like I don't want to have to like learn a whole other culture. <laughs> but like it's I, I think it's this thing where often it it's um how do I put it? Tastes evolve and tastes are and tastes don't necessarily evolve for the same people at the same time. Like certain sometimes often people at um class distinction but sometimes it's uh, financial class but it's also just sort of like the class of smarter people or people who have more access to certain types of media like are exposed to like the avant-garde right like right. Some, or like whatever the new is the people that are like my job is i'm going to create comedy that is new and you get like the raw version of it and i've seen a lot of those things and you're like um it's going to have to essentially be sort of like watered down and its influence filtered through before the general public catches up to this style of comedy. Right. Right. It's like, it's so much as like, let's say like sarcasm or whatever, like Gen X style sarcasm (laughs) or irreverence of the early nineties that was like critically acclaimed Mm -hmm. by the aughts. Like, you would see that style of comedy in, like, CBS shitty sitcoms, right? And now, critics would be like, that's bad. <laughs> but that is really popular because it took 10 years for, like, essentially people to get it. And I think sometimes you do see that with food, which is, like, oh, it's hard to think of examples. But, like, I don't know, like, when, like, and I, like, let's say pork belly was, like, really in, right. like, a, 15 years ago or let's say 15 years ago or whatever, when Pork Belly really, was really in, David Chang did those things. And and I had- And now it. it's at Applebee's. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, right, and, like, and if you put Pork Belly in front of me, I'd be like, in 2020? Like, what? <laughs> and, and, like, and even though as a person who still eats meat, like the idea of like pigging out, pun intended, since I did that on purpose, <laughs> is like insane. Like, it's like, it's so boring and- like a thing that I've experienced so many times that it's not interesting to me, but right. like, and, and how that happens is, is, is a matter of time and how things th- filter through society. And, and you can argue that like, and rightfully, right. So it's like eating pork belly that I, that was in vogue when I ate it in 2005, 2006 or whatever, oh. I was eating it as it filtered through like a Korean population who has been right. eating it for thousands of years or whatever it was. But like, how and that is what's interesting about food is but i think um there are it doesn't work the same way in comedy but like there are hypothetically um really interesting comedians are pulling from different sort of avant-garde experiences and and they are filtering through and um i don't know where i'm what i'm saying the point is (laughs) it's simple you can look at in similar ways and i don't think certain things that have histories of art criticism mm-hmm. can interact the same way because all because the people making it are aware that they are feeding into a history right mm-hmm. so it's like um a i don't know a abstract painter 
knows the history of representational painting that they are working against and their audience also knows that. That is very different than an art form where most people's experiences with it are every day from their families, from their friends. Right, right. No, and it's funny. I don't know why. I really feel like... (laughs) So in my family, like um, among like my cousins me and my one cousin have like very like more I guess you would call funky taste in things in in terms of art and stuff and like and in in terms of like our sense of humor like we're very like we all have a similar sense of humor in my family but both of us have like the weirder sense of humor and so one of our other cousins um got into doing stand-up when he was at college and I can't watch the video because I'm too afraid of watching Mm -hmm. it but um he like hates Sebastian Maniscalco and so like he like we have this argument like every time we get together about like whether Sebastian Maniscalco is good and yeah. so and I think I think about him all the time in this terms like of like what is taste and like how is like how because I think he is funny <laughs> and like sure. and it doesn't make any sense I guess in terms of like what else I like and what else I think is funny but I I don't know what it is about him because I also only found out about him when my dad like showed me a viral video of the doorbell joke. (laughs) And I was like, I was immediately like, I don't care about this because like my dad's showing me something stupid on Facebook. But then I was like, actually, this is funny. And then I'm like, so like, I don't know why I want you to explain. Please explain Sebastian Maniscalco. Like, how did that happen? And I think that this is sort of relevant in terms of taste. Yeah. Yes. Um, He's a great example. And I'm really happy to, to fully... (laughs) I, I have been given an invitation to mansplain it, so I feel like it's okay. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> I think, and I will say to your cousin, who I think Sebastian is like a type of comedian that snobs, in a, a type of snob that like barely exists anymore, look down yeah. upon. But like, I will say this, many of who I think of as like the comedians, comedians, like very artful, respected comedians, are obsessed with Sebastian Maniscalco, right? So like John Mulaney is amazed by Sebastian Maniscalco. And, and it's for a couple reasons. It's, it's like doing physical comedy is really risky. And I think people assume it's really stupid and broad because it is like broad and you don't, it's not very verbal. Right. But like, you have to imagine most people are going up to on a show they take a mic out of the stand and they stand there and maybe they walk around to like do insane gestures is like incredibly risky and not rooted in anything specific. Like it's completely self-inspired his images and his visuals are deliberate and thought out. Like when I interviewed him and he, and he affirmed my suspicion that he (laughs) knows why he does certain things. I was Mm -hmm. like, this rules. It's like one of my favorite (laughs) things that's ever happened. Well, to learn it. But so the the thing that I have accepted and the thing that I've worked on and I you know I did this big list of ad, where I ranked every Adam Sandler movie and mm-hmm. and like that the list partly came out of the fact that I like Adam Sandler but yeah so it's it wasn't like I I took on this objective being like I hate Adam Sandler I'm gonna try to figure out why it works I like I liked a lot of these movies and I would keep on seeing reviews about how they're bad and when you watch all of his movies in order as I as I did so this is forty movies or something like that. Mm-hmm. you realize if you assume they're not bad they're all good right so, <laughs> and you're like well that's 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 intentional that is yeah. 
a person who with control deliberately being able to successfully control his output for consistency, right? Like mm-hmm. it's um and and what I have accepted and what I've been trying to really work on is having essentially like a post-taste appreciation of comedy for myself. Right. Like I don't yeah. demand I actually don't think it's a good way to live. Like, I think you should like <laughs> enjoy the things you enjoy and like, just enjoy them and don't be mad if someone else doesn't, you know, like, like the right. things you like and try different things. Cause you might like it, but like, don't be mad at yourself for not liking something. But as a person whose job it is to think about comedy, I found focusing on what I respond to is not interesting. Like I, I don't, I, I don't have the ability to describe how I feel in a way that I think like food critics hypothetically can, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's that type of food critics who really can like describe sensations and it's, and it's poetic or whatever. And I, one, I think you can do that more with food than comedy, but I, I, that was never what was interesting to me. And so as a result, I was like, I'm going to try to appreciate comedy no matter what, regardless of taste. If I like something, I almost hold it against it. I'm just yeah. trying to be like, if I don't like it and people do like it, why? How is it happening? What are they responding to? You know, mm-hmm. there's a thing that the Jerry Seinfeld is the most famous of saying this, but lots of people say it, but because he's so famous, he gets to say it the most, which is f- the idea that funny is funny. And yeah. it's really interesting because it was a thing that was used by previous generations to explain like why women should be allowed to do comedy too, which is like, Mm -hmm. if you're funny, that means you're funny. And that means you should do comedy. The problem is like when people were saying it, what they really were saying is if I think you're funny, then you're funny. Like, Mm -hmm. like that means you're allowed to pass that like, because you've approved to Jerry Seinfeld that you are funny, but what a, a person like Jerry Seinfeld has never done or why would he is like, Oh, what I find comedy, what I find funny is completely biased towards my sensibility, whatever that is. And I'm not going to investigate that (laughs) because why would he, he, when you are an artist, you're not necessarily tasked to investigate your taste. Your job is to assert taste. Your job is to be like, this is what I think is good. It's actually like what I, it it is actually why I struggle when I've tried to write, let's say non, non, uh, when I try to write fiction things or whatever, or mm-hmm. creative things or written comedic things, I struggle because I can't just be like, this is my taste and I think it's good. It's like a, <laughs> it's a bit of a problem. Anything I've done, I needed partners to be like, this is done. This is funny. Yeah. So, so I have tried to take the idea of funny is funny to be like, if you are funny to anybody, you are funny. So yeah. like, and that means things that like, to you or to me, like a person who's consumed so much comedy, who's seen everything, who's it's easy for me to be cynical or easy to me to be over it, to be like, if someone's laughing, that means it's funny. Now, mm-hmm. let me see what is interesting about it. Let me see like what makes this like compelling art. And I and what I try to do as uh, the, with my podcast, as I interview people, or as as I'm trying to do when I write, which is have people approach comedy as they do, let's say fine art, which is like mm-hmm. you go to a museum and it, let's say the only way you consume art history is through museums. So like museums actually like do a deliberate job of telling you like what important art is and the context in which that art exists. Even if you don't read the little squares, 
most art is in a room in relationship to other art and you're supposed to understand it as such and you get whatever you get from it and as a result because these institutions are creating these rooms there's insane amounts of bias that's built into it but that's a that's a different conversation <laughs> but but you could see a painting and be like well my eyeballs don't go this is beauty but you can be like oh i am like learning something i'm i'm getting an experience from this right like mm-hmm. i like going to museums i like looking at paintings i don't like and being like okay like i understand this in the context of history and as a result this is fascinating to me but i do prefer to look at art i do like and that's allowed um you know like i like photography a lot photography is my favorite art form because it's similar to comedy it's like a snapshot of how a person sees the world mm-hmm. and like it doesn't all appeal appeal to me but it is interesting to see everyone's point of view. So right. I think there is a way for people to like watch all comedy and be like, oh, it's interesting that this is how part of the country or part of society or part of whatever processes information and does it comedically. And like, I'm having a nice time. Like mm-hmm. I, maybe I'm not laughing, but I'm having a nice time, <laughs> which is like actually a thing that happens all the time when we watch comedy, especially at home, which is mm-hmm. like, it's hard to laugh when you're by yourself. But you're still, like, pleasant. You're like, oh, this is a nice time watching a character. Um, (laughs) And not be so caught up with, like, how much am I laughing? If I'm laughing a lot, that means it's good. Um, I think... um, So, like, with Sebastian, to bring it back in, it's like... What a what a kooky guy. (laughs) And he's doing this. And I think it's like, oh, and no one else is doing it. And I think... Because... And he deliberately picks obvious subjects, right? He's just picking, like family let's say family dinners right a thing that everyone has it's not a an unexplored topic but he's like it allows him to really express his comedy which is the crazy gestures and like flinging his hands in specific ways and that either works or it doesn't and and why it works who knows like it's that's what's magical about it like i can tell you for i can talk for an hour about sebastian maniscalco about why (laughs) whatever but what is also great about comedy is like there are unexplained reasons. Like yeah. it is to me, it is both a mystical art and like a thing I can demystify, but like that is what is why I'm able to still be excited about it. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I will say like why I ended up not ever writing about food was I was like, I want to have a thing that I could not have to intellectualize. Yes. Yes. And that, and that makes so much sense because it really does take a lot of joy out of it. Like when yeah. I was writing restaurant reviews, I was like, I hate, this like it just ruined the whole process so i i admire people who can write restaurant reviews and not like start to hate food because i I, i've been i adam platt who's the new york magazine restaurant critic i've been with him when he's as he's on uh, like eating to write reviews about it and it is interesting like he's he he jokes about being cynical about certain things Mm -hmm. but when a thing is new or exciting or just sort of really well done like it is interesting to him, but like I'm not there when he's going to like the I don't know like 50th new American restaurant of the year. that because right. like a lot of restaurants are just are that are being reviewed are not trying to be that's the thing that's so hard about food is like there are people who deliberately are being like this is not art I'm trying to create a thing that is not art for what, whatever that means right. even though they're failing because it is art because it's whatever but like as a result it's so weird to review a thing where people are like, I'm trying to create a neighborhood restaurant. So like yeah. <laughs> my value system is not, my value system is like, is it convenient 
does it scratch an itch of people who who live walking distance from this restaurant, not what a thing a person who's like writing about it for a magazine would want. And that's like, yeah. and that is, I don't know what, what do you do? It's like, <laughs> like my favorite restaurants or my, like the places I like, I used to be really into restaurants, I think, um, as an idea. And I would like know what was new. And then you go mm -hmm. to enough of them and you're like, I no restaurant that is like not doing a thing that I haven't necessarily been exposed to. Like, you know, if you're right. doing a type of cuisine that I've not eaten, whatever, like extreme regionality or just sort of doing it differently or whatever. Um, if you're just like doing whatever you define modern food is like, I, I'm just not going to get excited about it. Cause it's like, it's not, I've had so many versions of it right? and I, I'm old now and I rather have <laughs> like, I live I know the places that are walking distance that sort of do it. I'm like, it's not going to be better for this because these people, for whatever reason, as we talked about, have, I don't know if they grew up in the same place as I did, but like what the amount of salt they think is normal is the amount of salt I think is normal. <laughs> what keeps, because you're saying you don't want to like think about restaurants or food that way. What makes you like thinking about jokes in a way where you're kind of breaking it down and, and really, you know, opening it up and, and kind of you know, not talking necessarily about the visceral reaction, but about the intellect behind yeah. creating that. I will say that, like, I didn't get into journalism to, like, write about comedy necessarily. Like, I I, I barely, like, kind of backed into it. I started, like, I was writing music reviews because I wanted to work in the music business. And when I eventually was working in the music business, I was like, this is not for me. And I started a blog and I like was recapping Top Chef or I was writing like I, I sort of like came to writing about comedy much later. And um, something happened, like for whatever reason, it worked like my how my brain works and how comedians brains work. Mm -hmm. And it just sort of like I was able to sort of see the Matrix and enjoy the Matrix at the same time. And like it just is such a. <laughs> window into these people and and i'm just and mm -hmm. I, I the thing that i i sometimes say which is like i have a podcast about art it's just i talk about comedians because i have more expertise in comedy and because comedians are good at talking right and i don't know if that's true like i do think that is partly true right. which is like i'm interested in the creative process and <laughs> how one goes from having an experience or having a feeling and like how that then gets filtered through people. Um, but I don't know what would happen if I mm -hmm. like interviewed, you know, non-comedians and if like a, like a person who's good at talking, who's not a comedian or a comedy creator. But I do think, and I do think partly what is interesting to me right. is that because it's such an unexplored area, like there just isn't any discourse really mm -hmm. whatsoever. Like I know I've researched right. it. I am like, working on a book proposal and i look <laughs> to see what else there is and there just sort of isn't anything there you know like a handful of philosophers every once in a while philosophers have gotten really into the idea of like what we find humor humorous and like freud looked into it but like it really right. is like they were none of them were looking at comedy as an art form they're just looking at it as the fact that we laugh and why do we laugh and but until like the last 10 years there hasn't been like a history of people really talking about it. It's crazy. It's like, 
And so because of that, there is something mm-hmm. exciting about it. every idea I have. It's the first time anyone's had that idea. But I, and, and I do think um, how there's, there's sort of how comedy both reflects um, society and how it also is able to shape society let's say broadly defined the word society makes it a, mm-hmm. just a really interesting entry point to sort of have bigger ideas. Um, so on the re- reflection okay. side, um, comedians work on jokes by they have an idea and they test it out. So testing out means they try it in front of an audience and the audience responds in a certain way. And as a result, they change the joke to adapt to the audience they had, then they do it to another audience and they change it again based on that. And then they do that a thousand times, let's say. That it's probably mm-hmm. less, let's say it's a thousand times. But that means thousands, a thousand different group uh, groups of 300 people communicated something to this person about where society is on a certain topic. Now, and and most comedians are are mm-hmm. doing these jokes they're doing a lot of it. Often it's New York crowds, but a lot of them are tourists. But they're going around the country and not just tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four markets. They're playing cities that you can't imagine have comedy clubs, but do. And that is shaping how they tell this joke. So by the time we see it in this special, it is the reflection of how, I don't know, let's say 20,000 people see a certain issue. Like it's essentially like they're polling the country. Now, Regardless, that is interesting, right? So, like, let's say they polled 20,000 people and they realized those 20,000 people are really transphobic, right? So, like, that's bad. It's not, like, I don't think it's a societal good that that's the case. But it's a very useful way to know that a lot of this country is specifically transphobic in this exact way, right? Or racist in this exact way. Or whatever is in this Mm -hmm. way. I think the one you see probably most often is sexist, right? Because so many comedians are talking about dating. So right. like what they're how they communicate like reflects the sort of gender norms of whoever their audience is. So you you have that part of it, which is like no matter what, if you can completely detach yourself from the influence these comedians have, by watching comedy, you're just like, oh, this is where the country is at, or a portion of this country is at. And you can't deny it because like even if you don't think it's funny, clearly thousands of people did, and that means something right or wrong it means something and it can tell you in many ways to be like oh the problem is here like i think it's useful to be like just literally it's like oh this is where the views are we have we need now know what the views of the opposing side are we hypothetically can help address it now the other part is comedians have the ability to shape how we see certain things um for whatever reason, they're just sort of really good at it. And there's a bit of like um, comedy helping the medicine go down of like, let's talk about complicated issues, but I'm going to talk about it in a way that's funny. So it gets to you. They're also just sort of really good at putting things succinctly in a way that just like, Mm -hmm. it's almost like to create like earworms of ideas. Um, And it's, and the example I like to use because it's like the least um, touchy is, um, this comedian Shane Torres has had this joke about Guy Fieri. Do you know this joke? 
Yes, I love that joke. <laughs> so, so here's this guy, Shane Torres. He's a fantastic comedian. And I saw him opening for Kyle Kinane, who's one of my like five favorite comedians. And I had seen him before, but I had, you know, so he's just opening and he does this joke about Guy Fieri. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I was like, it's like, to explain for those who don't know, it's it's a defense of him. Yeah. But it was, and it's easy to be like, oh, of course, we all like him now. You have to remember seven years ago, everyone hated him. Like hated yeah. him. He's number one enemy for, as this joke argues for no reason just because he is not like what snobs think cool is um but so he so shane has this joke that about like essentially it's a joke that's like to our what this conversation is it's a joke about taste and it's a joke about like what we determine is cool it's a joke partly about like why is anthony bourdain cool yeah like just because he's he wears a leather jacket and is cynical but like so it's this this full-throated defense of Guy Fieri as both an idea and also as a person you learn that Guy Fieri is like a really like pro-gay marriage guy (laughs) he does so much work for charity um and like the entire idea of like what that show is which is like he's mostly helping like mom and pop restaurants like make a living which is like true like that being on that show is a real game changer for a lot of places people in a lot of cities that don't get featured a lot so I saw this joke maybe two years before it was on TV or in anything. Right. And I remember being like, whenever he's about to film something, I need Vulture to get some sort of exclusive in premiering it because this thing is going to explode. Yes. Because what he's go- this so succinctly captures a thing and it'll rewire your brain. If you don't like Ivietti, you listen to this joke, your brain is rewired and you like him. Yeah. And so this joke came comes out and it, it went viral. And and then as people would and you could see the world change. Yes. And <laughs> night and day. And that is the power comedy can have, especially when it's a thing that's like completely not talked about. Yeah. Right. So it's harder when it's a thing people are constantly talking about. But it for some reason, like its ability to sort of get past your first line of defense because it's comedy or a little bit more vulnerable. It's ability to sort of like condense speech and be convincing. And it can do something like that. Like obviously there's more serious examples, right? It's like no one like Bill Cosby is, was this somewhat known, somewhat talked about villain for forever long a time. But Hannibal Burris told one small joke, it goes viral and then everything else happens right. for whatever reason. And like, that is the thing that like satire can do. Right. <laughs> I say in a silly voice because like, but, and that is also the other part of it, which is like, oh, it's both a reflection of this thing and it can move things forward. Like it is a volatile art form, especially now where people like care about it so much. Mm-hmm. Like, especially as we are of the generation that sort of like came, we we're the first generation where like being a comedy nerd existed. Right. Like, they're just sort of like were discreet comedy fans and they all went into becoming comedians. But we were a generation because Comedy Central existed, because Seinfeld was so popular, because of Jon Stewart, where we're like comedians are like a big deal. Um, and that, and so all of it, it just sort of keeps on being fascinating. You know, like I've done a hundred whatever interviews and every time after I do one, I'm like, I don't know if I can keep on doing it. <laughs> and then I start researching a person. I 
And like 30 minutes in, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to talk to this person. Like, every, it happens every single time. <laughs> it's like not fun. And I think I should need to get over it. Like the sort of boomerang of emotions that I experience. But like, I, I don't know. Like I interviewed this comedian, Ali Sadiq, mm-hmm. recently, who I had kind of heard the name of, but like for whatever reason, missed his his special. And I was exposed to the fact that he's like, he had this one joke that went viral that I completely missed about like his time in prison. And I'm like, Oh, I've learned more about prison from his joke than any documentary I've seen any TV show that I watch. And it's a joke. It's like a 12 minute joke. If you watch a couple of jokes, let's say you watch 30 minutes of material. I think you could really get a sense of what it's like in a way that you could not in any other art form. Yeah. Including and, and that I I would say I don't think there's any other art form that would c- can capture a thing like that than comedy because how it condenses the human experience and how jokes like good jokes not you know bad jokes maybe not but good jokes are like icebergs which is you know obviously it's a cliche but mm-hmm. like it really is like the tip of what is a universe of experience and the podcast very much is like. Oh, the joke is the iceberg part of, or not the iceberg, the, is it iceberg? Yeah, the iceberg. But then, like, the rest of the, the interview is, like, the rest of this ice. Yeah. And so when you find out the rest about that ice, you're just like, oh, man, that iceberg is now so much more interesting. Well, I think we answered all of my questions without me really asking them. Um, yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I should have said. And maybe, like, the problem is when you give me the questions ahead of time, and this is a thing that I, I forgot. Yeah. When you give people questions ahead of time, they then internalize exactly. the question. Exactly. No, and, I, and I've and i noticed that lately, And it's a, but it's a certain kind of person who internalizes the questions, and other people, like, don't pay attention to them at all, which is fa- it's, I, it's fascinating. I think it's certain people have different can speeds of connection and like and i notice that because i talk to comedians who have like insanely fast speeds of connection but like as a person who does it like this is kind of like what i'm like in therapy like i'm just always looking to like tarzan (laughs) to the next (laughs) row well uh i'm glad we got to uh swing through the jungle (laughs) on on these topics um and yeah, I really appreciate the time. I, I think this is fun. It's okay. I feel like I wanted you to talk more. I, How are you? I mean, I have so much to say about all of this stuff, but I'm not, a, I don't feel like a cohesive enough thinker on the topics to like do it well for a recording. Like I'd have a yeah. great conversation about comedy, like over a drink or something, but like, I'm not going to do it on record because. <laughs> I'm the opposite. If you, if we were just her hanging out, I wouldn't, I would be so much more in my head about yeah, it and yeah. be like, you know, but like <laughs> on a microphone where it's an interview and that's context, I'm like, Oh, cool. I'm allowed to talk and it's okay. Everyone said it's <laughs> Well, um, thank you again.